0: Hello, Digital Nibbles listeners. We know you've been anticipating the revisit of some of our most exciting episodes, and the time has come. So sit back, relax, and
1: enjoy this episode we've pulled from the vault. I'm Allison. And I'm Ruth. And
2: this is Digital Nibbles. It's the 17th of April, uh, and we're ready for another edition of Digital Nibbles. I'm Allison Klein, and I'm joined by Reuben Cohen. Hey, Reuben, how's it going?
1: It's going great. I'm actually in the studio today in Portland, so it's uh, kind of a, a reversal of, of uh, the way it usually is. You're, you're actually not in the studio.
2: No, so I'm in my car. I didn't quite make it, but um, you know, a live cast has a certain, uh, a certain start time, and we will not stop an episode of Digital Nibbles for anything. So here we are. Uh, exciting episode today uh, we've got several Salons with us as well as Ben Kepes and we'll get to them in a minute but how have you been enjoying um, my fair city of Portland and the OpenStack conference?
1: You know Portland's actually one of my favorite cities in, in, in the U.S. you know it's up there with Austin I think that's you know great food and uh, it just has a really cool kind of atmosphere about it you know it's, it's a nice place.
2: It seems like everyone that I follow on Twitter is in Portland this week and so I'm getting all sorts of interesting tweets about Portland, and it sounds like there's been some fun parties at OpenStack. Have you gone to
1: any? Yeah, and I've been uh, sort of party hopping. You know, it's, it, the OpenStack Summit's been quite interesting. It, it, it's uh, For those of you who are not familiar, OpenStack is the sort of open-source infrastructure project that, that was originally started by Rackspace and NASA, and they're holding their annual uh, convention of sorts here in Portland so there's about 2,400 people attending, and there's been a lot of buzz and there's a lot of activity, momentum. It's, it's been a great time. Actually, last night I hit the HP party, which uh, had uh, probably a little too much in the way of free-flowing booze, but uh, great time.
2: Well, I'm glad that you're having a good time. It seems like a lot of interesting announcements coming out of the OpenStack uh-huh. event. Is there anything in particular that you would highlight?
1: You know, there seems to be a proliferation of so-called OpenStack distributions. It seems to be the thing to do today. Um, everybody, interesting, seems to be want to be the what they call the Red Hat of OpenStack. I'm not sure if anyone, including Red Hats, <laughs> funny enough. Um, but yeah, it's it's interesting. There's lots of lots of products and services coming out, so it's interesting to keep an eye on that project.
2: Well, you know, talking about HP, I don't know if you saw their announcement on their Moonshot server. Um, they finally released their first platform, and it was based on an Intel Atom chip. They've been getting a lot of attention on that in the microserver space. What do you think about microservers,
1: Reeve? Do you think they're going to take over the world? You know, it, I, I actually have been a big fan of microservers for a while. And I, I remember having a conversation with some of your colleagues at Intel probably about seven or eight years ago when the Atom processor first came out. And uh, it's funny how things have shifted since that time because the conversation back then basically was, no, Atom's for mobile and it's just for mobile. And then sort of over time, some of these other companies came out with this these sort of low-powered, um, you know, low-density or high-density, I suppose, uh, servers. And uh, now we're seeing HP jump into the mix. I think it's smart. It Make, makes a lot of sense.
2: You know, I think what we did with Adam is we put in some 64 um, bit capability into it. We put in some re- reliability features that we wouldn't ship for something for a cell phone, for example and and i think that made it a little bit more attractive for some of the right workloads in the data center i'm interested to see how this this uh segment evolves it seems like it's getting a lot of attention
1: yeah actually today's kind of a big day for intel you you've been announcing lots of things including a acquisition of a api management company i actually admit i haven't had a chance to really dig through that that too too closely um do you, do you have anything to share on what, what what you guys bought?
2: You know, I just found out about it after I stepped out of some meetings today. I know that we bought Mashery, and um, you know, this is just a reflection of our, you know, expanded work in terms of delivery of services. Um, but beyond that, I don't know a lot more. It, it will be interesting to see how this fits in with our overarching strategy. I, th- I think that one thing that it reflects is that people don't think of Intel. As much as a software company, um, as a software and services company, as a hardware company, but we have a very large business in this space. And, and this would just be one of the um, acquisitions in the last few years that, that points to that. So, you know, I, I would expect to hear more from Intel in, in this area. Okay. Um, we'll, we'll I'll dig and see if we can have uh, uh, someone come on the show and, and, and tell a little bit more, because I think it would be interesting to the audience. Um, I just got back from China, where I was at the Intel Developer Forum and at an ODCa summit, and that was that was quite interesting in terms of of seeing where the chi- the Chinese market is uh, focused on technology in general, and then on the cloud. Um, there were a lot of people there. One thing that China can always do is deliver numbers of people, and and these events did not disappoint. But uh, Intel made a bunch of announcements in, at IDF associated uh with uh server platforms. The other one that we talked about is our new E3 Xeon platforms uh based on the Haswell mar- uh microprocessor and, and talked a little bit about um how how that's aimed at doing uh, more um entry level um and web scale type of computing but um also integrating a lot of the graphics capabilities of that Haswell microprocessor for things like Uh, video content delivery. So some interesting use cases there as well.
1: You know, another conversation I had this week actually while at the OpenStack Summit was with some of the folks from Citrix. And they noted that they've uh, basically donated their Zen hypervisor. Keep in mind that they spent something like half a billion dollars acquiring the Zen hypervisor a few years ago, and they've donated it to the Linux Foundation. And uh, when I was talking to the folks, they they actually kind of pointed out an interesting statistic. Because typically, when when you're looking at Zen or or the different hypervisors, the the thing people point out is you know speed or performance or security. But they they actually pointed out a completely different metric that they say. The the clouds that are making the most amount of money out there, the Amazons and a few others, are all based, according to them, on the Zen hypervisor, and Zen wins for the most money being made in cloud computing based on their particular metric. So it's kind of interesting the, the way that they kind of spun that, uh, that idea a little bit.
2: You know, I think that that is a very interesting topic and one um, that has not got a lot of at- attention in the press, but... Um, the interoperability of uh, virtual machine managers is one of the challenges to achieving uh, the full value of cloud. And, mm-hmm. and I think that that's going to be coming more into focus over the next few months uh, in terms of the, you know, the challenges of making these things fully interoperable and manageable uh, because as folks start, you know, evolving their cloud usage and want to really run a true hybrid environment, the ability to manage across clouds and across platforms is going to be really critical.
1: Well, and I had that conversation actually this afternoon with HP after uh, I wrote a post on on my uh, Forbes blog uh, yesterday that basically pointed out that some in the industry believe that the two largest uh, OpenStack providers are actually not compatible with OpenStack. And during this conversation, you know, essentially HP said they are compatible and they have, a- they have full API compatibility. But what was interesting in that conversation is I think there's a distinction between interoperability on an API level versus portability of the actual virtual machine or the operating components, the application components. And sometimes those two things are, are you know, connected but separate and somewhat confused.
2: This is something that I think we should dig into further in future episodes. Um, but I know that we need to save our time because today we have two amazing guests. Um, you know, I think that uh, I've been looking forward to this episode for the last couple of weeks, and um, why don't we get right to it? I know that our first guest yeah. is Ben Kipps, and um, why don't we take a break and get Ben on the air with us? And we're back with Ben Caps. Welcome, Ben.
0: Thank you. It's always great to be here.
2: So Ben, you were in Portland earlier this week, but I believe you're back in New Zealand t- today. Um, how did you enjoy your time in Portland?
0: So um, I love Portland. It's, it's one of my favorite cities in the U.S. Fantastic coffee, fantastic beer, great food, um, and a healthy, active population. Um, what's not to love?
1: You know Ben, it's uh, it's good to have you back on the show. You are one heavy traveling man. You know, you, you travel what, 18 hours to, to for a uh, 24-hour trip to Portland. Uh, you you certainly put in the time to get get it done. You know, what what have you been up to since the last time you've been on the show?
0: Sure. So, um, you know, more of the same. I I I do a bunch of stuff, but I think it all kind of converges nicely together. You know, a bunch of consulting, a bunch of advisory work, um, and 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 the analysis that I do. And you know, the industry is is super exciting now. There's there's a bunch of stuff happening. You know, we saw, you know, as you mentioned the the uh, acquisition this morning. I mean, we're just seeing the, the the complete changing paradigm in the way this industry works. A move from from hardware to to software really eating the world, and, and, and watching companies like Intel, like Cisco, like like Juniper, Juniper try and reinvent to um, to respond to that is, is super exciting.
2: When you when you take a look at cloud, and you know obviously we our history together in terms of chatting, Ben has been around the the evolution of cloud. Where do you think we are today with where you thought we'd be in terms of? Enterprise use of cloud computing and, and what do you think is going to be the topic um you know for the next six months? What do you
0: see what which is on the forefront of folks' mind? Sure. So um you know, Ruben and I um were were in a car together probably a, a week or so ago, um, driving down the one oh one and I think he made the comment that um you know he's just waiting for the, the word cloud to go away. And I think we're kind of getting to the point now where um, you know, talking to my my, my enterprise customer friends, they realise that it's not about it's not about cloud, it's not one particular technology. What it's about is enabling them to, to compete in a in a world where the where the rate of change is incredibly fast. And so I think what we're seeing, you know, with the rise of, for example, software defined networking, what we're seeing is a realisation that um the, the infrastructure that powers their organizations needs to be flexible, needs to be able to be, be you know, moved on a dime, needs to be agile. And it's through things like as themes things like you know cloud software defined networking that that we enable that agility to occur so I think um you know five years ago we would have thought you know if you were asking us about cloud adoption in the future, we would have said you know there'll be there'll be this much use of Amazon and this much use of private cloud. I think what we're saying now is that it's there's a much more nuanced conversation, and what we're seeing is that there's there's a lot more enterprise agility that's enabled by some of these technologies that come under the kind of umbrella of, of cloud
1: more broadly. You know, the, the topic of sort of the monetary revenue aspects of cloud computing is one that seems to be coming up a lot lately. I was, I was having a conversation with a uh, fairly um, high profile venture capitalists actually on Monday uh, at, at the conference. And one of the things he said was actually quite interesting. He, he's, he's actually quite bullish on the concepts of sort of OpenStack and, and the money opportunities there. He couldn't really point to any companies that today are, are actually making significant amounts, but he, he thinks that within the next 6 to 18 months, it's a pretty broad window, that he'll start seeing some truly uh, breakaway customers. One thing he noted, though, he, he said that uh, he believed that Amazon Web Services in particular was, uh, was going through a, a, a tremendous growth curve at the moment, and uh, that he believed that their, their revenue will surpass $5 billion this year, which means that they'll have to disclose, first of all, the revenue of what's been a line item, essentially, in their annual report as a f- distinct um, you know, channel within that. And he believes that by 2012, Amazon conservatively will be at a $20 billion run rate. You know what? What are your thoughts? So is 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 he out to lunch, or is that something that's conceivable?
0: No, he's absolutely right. And so the interesting thing for me is that um, you know at, at the OpenStack summit there were a lot a lot of murmurings around the fact that it's basically um, everyone versus Amazon um, with, with a couple of notable exceptions you know Google and Microsoft and the reality is is that Amazon is is absolutely ele- the elephant in the room they have the, the overwhelming majority in terms of market share for for infrastructure as a service um, but the other really interesting thing is that they're also innovating arguably faster than anyone else so when you're the elephant in the room that's got the majority of the market share and you're innovating super fast, um, that gets to be super, super interesting. I mean, clearly right now Amazon doesn't have a very... Um, you know, compelling or, or, or well thought out um, sort of enterprise offering. But I think what we're going to see in the near future, and we're already starting to see, is, is two really interesting things there. And one is, um, Amazon is, is absolutely building out an enterprise um, sales force and enterprise product offerings for the public cloud. But I think what we've seen in, in recent weeks with the, the the news or the the, the rumors that uh, Amazon is building a, a massive uh, Private cloud for the, the the U.S. government. I think that in short order we're going to start seeing some some strong private cloud offerings from from Amazon or an ecosystem built around built around Amazon. Um, and at the mo and, and at the moment, you know, it's quite a polarized discussion. Uh, you know, OpenStack for for private cloud, um, Amazon for for, for public. Uh, I think that um, that conversation and that competition is going to become uh, a lot more nuanced. But to answer your question, absolutely. Amazon is 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 massive, huge, uh, growing fast, and um, you know a force to be reckoned with.
2: So, do you think that there's room? And I mean, if you look at the statistics about the growth in public cloud services, is there room for some other entries to come in and have the same type of footprint as Amazon? And if if so, um, you know, you mentioned Google and Microsoft. Are those the players, or is there somebody else that you've got your eye on?
0: So I think you know I think we need to be mindful that it's not a zero sum game. Um, I think you know clearly at the moment um, Amazon is winning the race in terms of sort of um, low cost commodity cloudless for want of a better term. Um, I'm really interested to see what um, happens with Google and Google's Compute Engine. Um, you know there's going to be announcements coming from them over the next uh, month or so, and I think we're going to see some really interesting things happening there. So so there are some other competitors in that sort of um, low cost commodity public cloud space but I think the other thing to be really aware of is that, is that, is that cloud really isn't a zero sum game um, and I've been saying for a long time that there's a real opportunity for small niche players whether they're niche because of a particular industry vertical or whether they're niche because of, of a particular uh, geographic location um, for, for these strong you know, small players to, to, to do some really, some really interesting things and, and, and to produce Compelling offerings, and I was interested to see uh, an announcement uh, this week from Rackspace that they're going to um, essentially partner with with third-party service providers, people like you know big telcos and the like, to to build a uh, essentially a, a Rackspace cloud for those te- for those telcos and basically that's I mean, that's great for Rackspace because it means they have a, a a massive global footprint without having the capital you know requirements of actually building that but it's great for the service providers because you know if you're a little uh, telco or relatively little telco sitting down in New Zealand um, you you can all of a su- all of a sudden add you know offer to your um, New Zealand customers a um, a robust, capable cloud offering that also has the benefits of being of being localized for them, and that's quite a compelling proposition.
1: You know, I'd also I'd also add that confusing sort of gross revenue with you know profitability or profit margin are two different things, and I I think I agree with the the niche orientated approach where a company that's making $2 billion in gross revenue yet has, you know, $500 million to maybe $750 million in profit on that is arguably just as successful as a company that, that is doing two, you know, $20 billion and making the same amount of profit, right? I'd rather be the one doing a, do it on $2 billion. So it's, it's interesting to see the, that. And I think that companies like Rackspace are going to be in a better position to, to capitalize on that kind of profit margin as well. You know, moving along, though, there, there are a lot of different technologies out there that are kind of converging. And, and it's, it's often interesting to look at the ideas of trends and trend lines and, and, and sort of, uh, you know, look at where that's going. And I know you, you're organizing a, a conference coming up that basically is, is kind of the, the pro, you know, look at the future, the, the, you know, what's, what's next. So can you tell us a little bit more about what you're doing there?
0: Yeah, so this is this is something I'm I'm super excited about because um myself and, and my friend and colleague um Krishna Subramanian, um, you know, both of us like to spend a lot of time really sort of thinking about what the future brings, and often when we sit at conferences, um, there's a lot of sort of explaining to do because people are, are are on a different level and there's kind of that sort of cloud 101. And so what we've decided is we're going to put on uh, what we're calling the Cloud 2020 Summit, which is a, uh, an invite-only event um, to be held in, in May uh, in, in, in Las Vegas um, where we're going to get um, a, a small number of people, sort of 80, 80 or so people in a room um, who are really, you know, um, exceptional thought leaders in the space um, and and really do some thinking and some talking about what cloud infrastructure is going to look like um, going through to, to to 2020 and I think it's amazing you know um, i've sat in a, in a bunch of you know late night um, alcohol fueled sessions with uh, with various members of the Clouderati. <laughs> and when you get, when, and, and when you get people in a room who don't need that sort of 101 explanation then the stuff you talk about and the ideas you can come up with and um, you know, the, the the magic that can happen is, is, is pretty outstanding. So I'm really looking forward to, to the events and the conversations that occur uh within it. Nice. I think
2: that uh you know that, that sounds like a fantastic opportunity, Ben. And um will you be willing to share some of the results of that that uh discussion?
0: Yeah, totally. So we're um, we're going to record parts of it, um, and I, I think you know both Krishnan and myself, um, you know, we're, we're both industry analysts and commentators. So we're absolutely absolutely going to use that as the basis for for some thought pieces um, and some kind of forward-looking uh, research pieces. So I kind of see it as as very much sort of a, a beachhead event to to really um, plot and plan the future for infrastructure.
1: And Allison's just returned from China. And, and one of the things I've noticed in China is they have a particular interest on this concept of the Internet of Things, where anything and everything that can connect to a network, or, or the, in this case, the Internet, will be connected. Um, and, and as far as countries sort of propagating and pushing that concept forward, I, in some ways China, I think, is at the forefront of it for whatever reason. Um, you know, do you have any thoughts on this kind of phenomenon of you know the kind of super connected future?
0: Yeah, totally. So I'm, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm super excited about that. You know, like I, I do, you know, a reasonable amount of sort of quantified self stuff where I track, you know, the stuff that I do sort of um, biomechanically. Um, and and you know, I've seen all those sort of concept videos, which which kind of try and show what it's going to look like in the future when our refrigerator talks to our oven, talks to the supermarket, and and all those sorts of things. And um, I mean, all that stuff is no longer science fiction. That's very much becoming science fact. Um, so I'm, I'm I'm super excited. You know, uh, you know, imagine a world where everything's connected, and we're all the low-value stuff that we do at the moment. You know, how much time do we spend writing shopping lists and cleaning out a refrigerator because we forgot about the 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 mouldy cheese at the back of it? You know, if you could save that time, if if some connected system could just help you plan your meals, so that a you know your your diet and and your nutrition was was sorted out um you know your refrigerator was was full of fresh food because nothing went off because your refrigerator knew what had to be used you know connected to your your, your supermarket I mean that's just one tiny example but if you think about what we do day to day we do so much stuff that has really no value and and if we can automate that through through connected sensors and devices then then all of a sudden it gives us the opportunity to really focus and concentrate on on much higher value stuff and i guess um you know, if we look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, I, I see that the Internet of Things to a to a to a greater extent will really help us reach the the the, the top level of that hierarchy of needs, which is self actualization. So I'm really excited. It's it's you know the promise um, of technology that we've been hearing about for years and years, but it's 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 at large and and in practical applications.
2: Ben, we've uh we have to get on with uh, Deborah, but I do have one more question for you, and I can't resist. You you describe this this future, which is fantastic, Um, but maybe because I just was in China and it it was very stark to me, how do you ensure that as we move towards that vision that everything is connected, that devices are are tracking what we need, that we maintain the privacy and and autonomy of decision-making that individuals want?
0: Yeah, I mean that's a, a, a really good question. I guess um, you could either say that either I'm naive or I'm just um, just really trusting. But you know, I, I put everything out there. I, I, I live my life on, on Facebook and Twitter. You know, I, I, I publish everything. There's there's really very few secrets. And so I kind of think that um, if fundamentally my life is better because of connected technology, um, and if fundamentally I don't actually have any secrets that that I'm concerned about, then. The, the benefits of connected devices and, 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 I guess, living my life to an extent more publicly um, far outweigh, outweigh any sort of deleterious effects. So, yes, it's an issue, and clearly it does, there's things that people need to think about and, and, and be worried about, but I, I would suggest that, that maybe those concerns and those fears are sometimes overstated, I
1: guess. Ben, as always, it's it's been a pleasure to have you join us today. Where can our listeners learn more about what you're up to?
0: Sure. So, um, uh, as I said, I live, live large on Twitter, so I'm Bam um, Keeps, B-E-K-E-P-E-S on Twitter, um, or they can check out my blog, which is uh, diversity.net.nz.
1: And uh, up next, we have Deborah Salons, who's sitting in the, uh, in the studio with me. With that, we'll go to break. And welcome back to Digital Nibbles. I'm Reuven. We're actually joined today in the studio with Deborah Salons, who's actually been on a show before. Welcome back.
3: Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh,
1: for, for those who may not have uh, listened to the previous show, Deborah is a, well, she's a variety of things, an attorney, uh, an expert in cloud computing, and, and, a, and uh, an all-around cool woman.
3: Oh, thank you. So wh-
1: what have you been up to since the last time you've, you've been on the show?
3: I think I've been up to the same thing. I've uh, really been researching and delving into cloud computing regulatory issues. I'm also, you know, looking in the information security space, uh, cybersecurity, and uh, I've been asked to speak quite a bit on big data and uh, legal issues surrounding that, which it's it, that's been a very interesting uh, area for me to look at, and I know that's what I'm here to discuss today. Uh, but uh, before we get into that, I am a lawyer, so I have to give my my lawyer disclaimer, that anything that I discuss today is just legal information. It's not legal advice. And although I am a lawyer, I'm not your lawyer. So please go out and find one, or you can call me. But right now, uh, I'm just discussing the legal issues.
2: You know, Reuben, I think we should start Digital Nibbles every episode with that disclaimer. And (laughs) and I think it... (laughs) It might add a little spice to the show. Um, Deborah. I'm so glad that you're on the show. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. And I'm going to go back to my last question for Ben and say privacy in the cloud. This is something where, you know, there's tons of issues from the individual to the enterprise. The last time we talked, we talked a lot about regulatory control, but I wanted to just ask the, the simple question of, do you think that the industry is taking some of the privacy aspects seriously enough uh, to manage and and secure the data that is being shared amongst data centers today?
3: I think the industry is taking the privacy regulations seriously. I think um, more and more the FTC is cracking down, the Federal Trade Commission is cracking down on certain entities, and uh, they are being responsive, and I think that there are some examples being set forth. Uh, I think that one of the challenges is, though. There's a difference between your technologists and your business and legal department. And when your technologists are actually developing things, it's, it's probably best for them to be educated from the very beginning or at least have a sense of some of the things that they need to look for in the process um, so that they can actually bake in privacy by design, uh, for instance, in their technology.
1: You know, there, there was a, a news story that came out, I think, last week, and it re- revolved around a company that Walmart owns that uh, does video streaming. It's a service called Voodoo, and apparently some thieves broke into their, their office and stole a physical hard drive, and on that hard drive were basically user passwords, um, and which forced several million of the users of this service to all reset their passwords. And so, which brings up this concept of, I think we mentioned it last time in our show, this privacy, it appears to be almost impossible to protect. And do, do you think that there, in this sort of ultra-connected age of cloud computing and, you know, web services and, you know, Internet of Things, that it is truly possible to remain and you know, anonymous or, or, or maintain a level of privacy?
3: Well, <laughs> I think that, well, that's a tricky question, but for, from my perspective, Um, I'm a little bit of a hacker at heart, and I go to a lot of the hacker conventions and things. So um, I've kind of learned over the years that I don't think anything is really secure, 100%. So um, to answer your question, I don't know if there's a way to make these regulations or to protect your information. So it's 100% secure, and um, people can 100% maintain their privacy. What I do think that can happen is that businesses are more well-informed, Um, They make choices in the beginning to uh, mitigate or to minimize any possible breaches. And also, I think the consumers on the consumer side, they need to be educated. So you have a choice whether or not you want to sign up for certain things. And consumers need to understand that when they sign up for certain things, that they some things appear to be free, but what it's not really free. You're giving up your information and some of your privacy. So I think maybe a mindset change needs to be, take place with both the consumer and then also the enterprises.
2: See um, as interesting best practices associated with management of data um, by corporations in terms of protecting um, maybe individual customer rights, or you know, being able to extract value about insight into customers without violating a sense of customer privacy to the point of um, feeling. Uh, I don't know what the right word for it is, Deborah, but feeling like um, they're exposing customer information.
3: Sure. Um, I think from what I've been seeing and when I discuss with people about what they're trying, or enterprises, what they're trying to do, I think it's very tricky. And I think we're in the process right now where everyone's trying to figure this out, where there's a healthy balance of we're taking this information, we're going to enhance your service, but on the flip side, they're also using the information. Um, you know, to do target marketing and things like that. So um, it is a very, it, it's a very hard balance to to perfect so that the customers feel comfortable with some of the information that they're giving, feeling that their information is secure and also that the information that they're giving is actually going to enhance their service. I, I don't think anyone has completely perfected it yet. I think there's a lot of trial and error going on in the industry, but um, I think... You know, we're we're getting there. I think that as more and more as this technology evolves, and and also people are becoming more aware of the privacy regulations, I think that these things are 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 getting better. But I don't think it's been perfected.
1: You know, one of the discussions that we've had over and over and over again, it seems, is this idea of whether or not the cloud is truly secure. And you know, over the last several years, I think I've come to the realization that it's not necessarily that the cloud is more or even less secure than than you know traditional approaches to to technology. It's that the vectors of attack in a cloud-based environment are, are different. And when you when you look at it from that point of view, it's it's not a you know binary choice. You know, one is less or more. It's the fact you have to look at it differently. And I think that that one of the big parts of, of looking at technology as a technologist is understanding the those you know vulnerability aspects of the technology itself do you think that from a privacy point of view or, or even a sort of data protection point of view that maybe some of these things should be better maybe taught or how, how do you think we should improve the industry to, that these sorts of you know massive data leaks don't happen more frequently
3: sure and um, I, I think that's a really good point about what you were saying about cloud security. I just did a, um, I just assisted the Homeland Security Defense Business Council on their cloud security symposium, which involved a whole bunch of federal entities. And there was this big debate as whether the cloud is secure or if it's better to have your data down the hall. Um, and, and I think the consensus is, you know, it, it really depends on how you manage that security. Uh, I just finished reading Joe Weinman's Cloudonomics, I'm sure he's been on this show before, but I think the one point that he drives across and the one good thing about his book is that it really speaks to CIOs and um, and other executives in, in the business sphere about what cloud is and and how you can use cloud to best enhance your business and how you can use it. I think what tech, tech, Technologists might understand how things can get hacked, but I also think there needs to be some education in the, other, in the other business level, CEOs, CIOs, et cetera, so that they understand the technology and they can make the right choices. I think that, um, you know, I think like you said, cloud being insecure, that's something that uh, obviously a CEO or someone who's not really involved in the technology might automatically go to that assumption. But if there's more education on the business side, I think that people can make smarter choices.
2: I heard a term uh, stated, Deborah, that you probably can explain to us, which is the right to be forgotten. Can
3: sure. you explain that? The right to be forgotten is the concept that you could ask um, a service provider or someone who's collecting your data that you do not that you want your data to be deleted. And that not only means your data is deleted, but you're not searchable, um, that these records don't stay around forever. And this concept is being widely debated in the European Union right now. The Europeans view privacy differently than the Americans do. The Europeans view privacy as act- an actual human right, where on, in, in the United States, it's more of a consumer protection. So they take privacy a little bit more seriously than we do. But this, this concept is, is being debated as becoming a regulation in the EU, and when you think about it here, it's its like you put all this information on Facebook, Twitter, what have you. How long is that going to be around? You look at Ancestry.com. I, I went on there. I checked out to see if I could find information about my grandparents that came over on a ship through Ellis Island. I found the roster of of all the people on the ship, which was quite amazing because the Internet wasn't around when they were alive. So if you think about the capabilities of big data and storage and how how much data can be stored, there is the capability that these things can be around for a really, really, really long time. And uh, the right to be forgotten is basically, you know, your right to say, I I don't want to be, I want to be forgotten. I don't want my records to be around anymore.
1: Well, I, I for one, thank God that the Facebook and Twitter didn't exist when I was a teenager. Oh, me too. (laughs) You know, <laughs> I'm glad digital cameras didn't the, the, yeah. weren't involved
3: when the, I was a teenager.
1: The, the things I did when, when I was 16, I would not want to uh, remain on the Internet the rest of my life. You know, one, one of the interesting things that popped up uh, earlier this week was a new service that's actually being offered by uh, Google. And it basically is a tool that addresses data after you die. And, it, and this is something that's actually affected things like Facebook quite a bit. And essentially, this uh, new Google tool allows users to decide what happens to their data after they die or become inactive online. And it's the first major I guess network or company to deal with this uh, rather sensitive issue. Um, you know, I, apparently the, the feature applies to email, social networking, Google Plus and other accounts. And Google says that users can opt to have their data deleted after 3, 6, or 9 or even 12 months of inactivity. Do you think services like what Google is doing is is going to become the norm as we address our kind of you know limited time on this planet
3: sure uh, you know i think that that's it's a good move on google's part they're being proactive and they're really listening to what the consumers and what people are saying and i think that um, they're kind of getting ahead of the regulation that nothing's been, as far as I know, nothing's been set in stone in Europe yet. It's being debated, but they're probably anticipating that this come down the pike. So, um, you know, kudos to them for kind of getting ahead of the regulation, but this is probably something that will be built in as as more and more consumers are talking about it or, or users of these products. And, you know, if there is a certain... Sect of the population that says I'm not going to do this because you know just fundamentally my information is going to be there forever. It is a great option, and if you can if you can build it into your technology, um, I think it's, I think it's a great it's a great step forward for people to manage their privacy. And I think having the consumer and the user having the feeling that they can manage their privacy, whether or not they give it up or not, just having the feeling that they can manage it actually empowers the consumers, and they feel more comfortable using the products. So I think that that's, it's a win-win for everyone.
2: So, Deborah, you know, I guess the question is, is if you, you can't go on a long vacation based on Google's policy because they will just decide that you've
3: died. Right, right. And I was actually thinking about that when Reuven when was saying this because I, don't, I, didn't, I wasn't aware of this. And I was thinking, how, how are they going to know when you pass away? Like, does someone have to send someone a death notice? Well,
1: according to, this, <laughs> uh, according to what I read here, this says that the company would text a provided number or email address, a secondary email or warning message before any action is taken, according to their release. So yeah, so basically
3: you know, never I, step away from your electronics because you will be declared dead. Right. Don't go on a world cruise.
1: You know, on, on a more serious note, there there was the uh, the, the attack in in Boston um, the other day, and you know it was it's awful. And one of the things that that I, I really sort of jumped out at me after the the attack became sort of publicized is the use of social social media within sort of uh, trying to you know address the attack. and I, I was really intrigued by the fact that basically said, if you have social media coverage videos, pictures, what tweets, whatever, please send them to this email address at the FBI. And for this is really the first time I can remember social media playing a role in the active engagement of of a, you know, a crime scene.
3: Right, right. No, um, and it is it is a tragedy what happened in Boston, and I've been following it uh, a lot because I am a news junkie and I'm I'm also very interested in what's going on. But uh, today, when I was in my hotel room, I had cable news on, and the commentator mentioned this is the first crime that that has happened or or terror attack that has happened, however you want to label it. Um, that. Has involved the whole country working together to solve the crime yeah. or, or, or the terrorist act, um, and you know it's quite amazing that everyone is sending in their. Pic- of course they are, but the capabilities and having all of the the videos, the the pictures, uh, just even. And the capabilities that our, our, our pictures have, like a time stamp on them and, and everything. I mean, it's it's an amazing amount of information that the government can use to find uh, the people who've done this. And it's quite amazing. They were saying, you know, during 9-11, none of this technology was, uh, was available. In fact, uh, my old law firm... Drinker Biddle, they have some of the Blackberry messages that were going back and forth between people in the Twin towers and the attorneys that were that hadn't made it to work yet. I think it's in the Smithsonian. But that's where they were. It was just Blackberry messages back and forth. We didn't have there wasn't I don't think we didn't have Facebook or Twitter or any of that. And I was the way I found out about Boston was via social media. and it was amazing. I saw updates on. Twitter, like there's going to be an explosion. We're doing it. It's, it's it's the police that are doing a contained explosion. Don't worry. And also, don't use your cell phone to to overcrowd the airwaves. Use social media if you can to let people know that you're okay. So it's, it's pretty amazing. So there are good things with uh, a lot of information out there.
2: It really changes the way I think that uh, as a community, as a collective community, we deal with situations like this as well. And I think it it has an amazing way of making us much closer um, on, a, on a grander scale than than what might have been an incident where you know you felt like you connected with people in Boston, but there wasn't that immediacy of connection that that things
3: like Twitter and Facebook have brought. Mm-hmm. There's definitely an immediacy and a connection. Agreed.
1: I was just gonna add that the interesting about social media is, in in some regards. Yeah. It makes you more connected to a broader group of people, but in other regards, it seems to make you less connected. You know, in 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 the sense that it you you sometimes become this um, inanimate object of, of of the social world. So it's it really depends on, on a lot of a lot of tangents. It's hard to articulate, but right. it, it's it's some some ways. My my wife points it out. She says, if it isn't. If it isn't on Facebook, it generally doesn't happen, and everyone already knows your business, so they don't ask your business, mm-hmm. you know? And and, she, and she's, I guess, she's married to a chronic oversharer, mind you, but um, it's just strange how the, the the social dynamics of our generation are, are totally skewed a little bit.
3: It is a little crazy. Like, you can stay home on a, on a Friday night and actually be social with people across the world, you know, sitting in front of your computer or even on your smartphone if you're out, um, I know, I, I remember someone told me when I was explaining to them that I was on Twitter all night once, they said, so you're more social, but you're less outgoing.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I,
3: I thought that was it's such a smart saying, like, okay, I am being social, but in a different arena, but I'm not going anywhere. I'm in my pajamas. <laughs> so it is, it is pretty amazing. Um, and I think also what you put out there, you need to be smart about it. And I think that that's, uh, Media literacy, whether it be in, in the, the very beginning of media literacy, it was more about broadcast television and children understanding what they're watching. But now I think children also need to be media literate about what they're sharing about themselves out there. It's like you almost need a little PR uh, uh, class to tell, say, what's appropriate, what isn't and, and education, like this could be around forever. So, you know, you need to be, to this be is mindful. It's going to show up in your resume. Yeah. Right. Be mindful about what you share. Mm-hmm. Well, Deborah, it's always a show. pleasure to have yeah. you on the show. Thank you very much for having me. And
2: I, I wish we had more time. There's a lot of topics that we could talk about in terms of privacy and, and uh, regulation and cloud and big data. Um, we'd love to have you back on soon to delve into the aspects of regulation for data analytics. But with that, I think this is another end to another edition of Digital Nipples. Ruben, it's been a pleasure.
1: Yeah, it's been great. It's You know, one of these days we'll both get in the same place at the same time. We have uh, actually quite an interesting show coming up next time on, uh, on Mayday, which uh, we'll have Paul Miller, who's uh, actually a, a great guy. I know him well. He's kind of a, an advocate of a variety of very cool tech. And uh, a co-worker of mine who actually recently joined Virtustream, Brian Gracely, who actually has his own podcast as well. So we we're kind of have, have dueling podcast uh, episode going on.
2: Well, and Paul has a podcast too. So apparently we're, we're specializing in podcast hosts. Our next edition. Um, it'll be on May 1st, 3 p.m. Pacific, and we can celebrate May Day together. So, hope everyone joins us, and for that, uh, that wraps another edition of Digital Mittles. <laughs>